0: Hello. Yay. Welcome. Good morning, Union Hill. All right. So since Ben is not here this morning, I am happy to provide your weekly weather commentary and say, wow, I hope you enjoyed the rain as much as I did this week. <laughs> Very needed. Um, and that's about of as uh, advanced of a weather report as I can give. <laughs> uh, but in terms of other announcements, please refer to your weekly emails. Um, we have lots of updates as Food Truck Friday comes to a close at the end of this month and as we transition into embarking on a new journey of building tiny homes for our neighbors who uh, we are hoping to help transition out of homelessness. Um, so bittersweet and exciting changes. Um, It's fitting that we're outside this morning with the breeze and the sun, questionably, and with the newly wet earth and with each other uh, to talk about our earthly home together. So before we begin, let me dismiss kids ages four through fourth grade to go with Catherine and Jane for their lesson this morning. And let us Pray to open our time. And thank you, Holly and Eric, for leading us in worship. I wanted to say that. It was beautiful and helping us enter into this space. So let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us here after another week, giving us the gift of being together, gathering to worship you, and to fellowship with each other, and to consider the truth that you have for us today. We pray that you would use this time to bless and to energize and to renew, as well as to convict and to guide, to heal what's broken and to build up our faith and our discipleship. We thank you for this time and pray that you'd bless it in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So if you recall, and by no means do I expect you to, but if you recall last winter, I asked the question, how are you? John Ziegler, in his message a few weeks back, asked a related question. Who are you? Well, at the risk of having too much of a good thing, today I want to ask you another question. Where are you? Um, before you know it, we will have asked ourselves who, where, what, why, and when and how we are. It reminds me a bit of a youth game that we played this last Advent season. The game was questions only. Act out an entire scene using only interrogative statements. The scene was Christmas ornaments on a tree, and the question that these ornaments started asking themselves very quickly turned existential. What are we? Why are we here? What is life? What? Why? (laughs) Uh, it was great. I looked at my Christmas tree very differently for the rest of the season, um, but I digress. The question I'd like to place before us this morning is, where are you? Where are we? And in thinking about this question, please resist the urge to abstract. I mean, simply, do you know where we physically are today? What do we call this space the world we inhabit, our specific location in it. As followers of Christ and as worshipers of God the creator, it is important and it's telling how we answer this question. I'll hazard a provocative opening in saying that there are certain answers that we ought to have to this question and certain answers that are unbecoming and even inconsistent with our professed identity as servants of God. And over the course of this week and next week, I would like to consider together how our answers to this question can range from worshipful to straight up blasphemous, and perhaps somewhere in between. How we answer the question, where are we, stems from who we believe God is and what we believe God is about. In short, how we answer this very important question depends on our theology of creation. What does God tell us about the world we live in? And how does this bear on our discipleship? God's given us the gift of scripture to help us ponder these things together. So this week we'll explore a Christian theology of creation as found in scripture. And next week we'll consider some implications that this theology has for our discipleship. And I want to emphasize that this interpreting and pondering is something that should only really be done together. It's the work of a community in conversation with each other gathered around the table. So what I'm going to offer for us to consider together comes from my own sitting at the table, so to speak, with others who are engaged in these sorts of conversations. In particular, a lot of my own thinking was challenged by reading this book. And it's important. I'm bringing it up here because I want you to see it. Um, It's by Stephen Boma Prediger, and it's called For the Beauty of the Earth. Um, I read this book with my class at SPU a few years back, and it's stuck with me over the years. Um, Some of what I'll offer today comes from his and others' interpretations of Scripture and scholarship and from conversations that this book sparked amongst our class and with with many going forward. Um, So for me, just my testimony is this book helped open up Scripture as very good news to me in a way that I had not seen it as good news before. Um, so I'm excited to share some of this with you and hopefully bring you into that table conversation more than I'm sure you already are. So that said, let's begin. If you have your Bible physically or an electronic copy, this is where you get it out. We'll be hopping uh, between a few different scriptures this morning. But for um, for starters, we will be turning to Genesis 1. We do not have to go far in scripture to find a robust theology of creation. So turn to Genesis one. I'll be reading from the NRSV and slightly modifying to highlight some of the original Hebrew. Um, but the ESV is very similar. Find the translation that you like. All right. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. While the ruach, the breath, spirit, wind from God, swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness God called night. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And there was evening and there was morning. The second day. Then God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. God called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruits with the seed in it. And it was so the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, the trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give lights upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the lights from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make Adam, an earthling from the Adamah, the earth. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image and the image of God. He created them male and female. God created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so God saw everything that God had made. And indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that God had done. And God rested on the seventh day from all the work that God had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it, God rested from all the work that God had done in creation. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. There is so much here that we could spend a lifetime exploring the opening chapters of the Bible and never exhaust their treasures we will only scratch the surface today, but there are a few gleanings here that are important for our purposes of developing a theology of creation. In these opening verses, we find a profound and fairly clear theology of creation if we have eyes to see it. So here are a few gleanings. I'll be offering a few. So if, if you're still taking notes after this year, here's where you take notes. Not sure if any of us are doing that right now, but there you go. Okay, number one, the first thing that we learn from this text right off the bat is that we're told the very first thing about God is that God is creator. We so quickly overlook this. We take it for granted. But here Genesis reveals that before we know God as savior, redeemer, coming king, God is creator. God makes things. Part of the fundamental nature of who God is, is one who Creates, one who fashions something of order, beauty, goodness out of the chaos. God is an artist. God's first title, before and above all else, is Creator God. So where are we? We're in the Creator's world. Number two, the identity of God as Creator bears directly on that which God creates. What the creator creates can only properly then be called creation. Our world, its moon, the other planets in our solar system, the 3,200 known solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy, there's probably way more, the 2 trillion galaxies estimated to exist in the universe, the entirety of the cosmos, the proper term for all of this is creation. So where are we? In a God-made world, creation. Number three, we see that God shares power and agency in creating. Genesis shows us that both human and non-human creatures are invited to participate in creation and respond to God's word in their own unique ways. So we read that the earth brings forth vegetation actively. The waters actively bring forth swarms of living creatures. Humans are also given a unique task that entails an ability to participate God's creation has a genuine ability to act on its own, to respond back to God. So where are we? In a responsive creation. Number four, the first six days of Genesis are beautifully structured and ordered. In the first three days, God acts to create order out of chaos, chaos, He separates light from darkness to make days, separates waters above from waters below to create sky and sea, separates waters below to create space for land. So in the next three days, God in turn fills each of these newly ordered spaces with abundant life. So the first day, God fills the day and the night skies with lights to mark time. On the fifth day, God fills the sky with birds and the sea with sea creatures, And on the sixth day, God fills the land with all types of land animals, including humankind, right? So where are we in a world that is wisely ordered by God? Number five, the creator looks upon creation and over and over again calls it Tov, good. Tov connotes pleasantness. Desirability, usefulness, and a state of moral goodness. If you're at all familiar with other ancient Near Eastern stories that are contemporary with the Genesis account, you'll recall that many of them tell of the world's creation through cosmic battle, through violence, through bloodshed. Genesis is highly exceptional in saying that God brings creation into existence peacefully, with joy, with cooperation from creation itself. Violence is alien to God's creation. So where are we? In a world that is good and founded in peace. Number six. We also find that creation is the home for an abundance of diverse creatures, each with their own allocated niche and diet. They're given what they need to thrive. God not only blesses humans in the text, but God also blesses the birds and the sea creatures and tells them to increase in number as well. Where are we? We're in a home that we share with many other good and blessed creatures. And number seven. And this will be our last point for now, because, of course, there are seven points for our text on Genesis 1. Like, how could there not be? So... Number seven, at the end of the sixth day, God looks at the whole, the total product of all that God has created, how it's woven together and calls the total whole, very good, extra tov. And then God rests. God enters into Sabbath joy, appreciating, enjoying, loving, receiving glory from creation. Our final point this morning is that the climax of creation is the Sabbath. And Sabbath is the enjoyment of the whole of creation, all of it together. The ecosystemic product of all of God's weaving is very good and cause for enormous joy. Humanity is not the climax. Just a side note. Humanity is not the climax. The total creation appreciated by God and Sabbath joy, that, that is the climax. So where are we? We're in creation woven together by God into very goodness and blessed for Sabbath rest. Now I've given us seven points and there are hundreds more we could draw. Um, Perhaps you're already thinking of your own. There are many, but for now, this will start us on our theology of creation. So, so far this we know we're in the creator's world. Therefore creation, creation is responsive Wisely ordered, good, founded in peace, home to many good, blessed creatures and creation in its fullness is very good and blessed by God for Sabbath rest. Stephen Boma Prediger wrote this book concludes God is a gracious homemaker and the earth is our home. And we are here in it with a great many other creatures who also call creation. This must be our starting place before we rush to the verses that tell us about humanity's uniqueness or that locate us in the text. We must remember that this is God's story. Then it is ours. So if we're to properly understand ourselves in this text, we need to properly center God first. And in this passage, God is centered as creator and God in turn centers creation. And only from this place of taking God and God's interests seriously Can we approach ourselves in the text appropriately? So with this essential frame in place, now we can turn to humanity and see how our small and special piece fits in. We find God's decree, let us make humankind in our image in verse 26. We're told, then God said, let us make a dom in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. A few more notes before we get so preoccupied with how special and unique humanity is. And I'm not saying it's not, but before we go there, let's first notice the Hebrew text reads and Elohim, which is the plural name for God said, let us make Adam in our image after our likeness. So the word in the text that will eventually become the formal name Adam is actually at this point, a generic term and translates roughly to earthling or groundling. For the creature Adam is taken from the Adama, the soil, the dirt, the clay. The Latin would translate it, let us make a human from the hummus, the ground. Humans are at our core, down to the name that God has given us, connected to the earth. We're named for it. God tells us that from it we are taken and to it we shall return. Humans are connected to the earth. Second note before we continue. Humans are created on the same day as all the other land animals. Have you ever noticed that? We're created on the same day as the cattle, the creeping things, which is a fun category, and the wild beasts of every kind. Humans are connected in our home, but also in our nature, the sort of being we are with other members of the animal worlds. We don't get our own special day of creation. We're connected, we're embedded in relationship with other living creatures. Humans are connected to other creatures. So these connections in place, we do also see that humans occupy a unique place in creation. First of all, God has a special intent when God makes humans. God says, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. Much could be said here, but to be brief, the phrase in our image is a translation of the Hebrew word Selem. Selem appears throughout the Old Testament and is often translated as image, statue, icon, or idol. It connotes a carved image that represents a deity. Isn't it interesting that this phrase that is often used of carved idols and images is here used in a positive way to describe humanity? as bearing the image of God. God literally molds the Adam from the Adama, that is, uh, from the clay, and says that this is a living icon of me. It represents me here. So we know that humans are both embedded in and united with the fabric of creation, and we uniquely reflect the image of God. And this identity informs our function in creation. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. The Tanakh translation of these verses renders the text, fill the earth and master it. Rule it. Subdue. Master. Master dominion, rule. These are weighty words. And creation groans under their interpretation. Or should I say misinterpretation? Under the use or abuse of scripture. We hear these words, the commission to subdue or master, to have dominion or rule. And we frequently interpret them as dominate, dominate. Subjugate. Violate. I wonder if scripture offers us any insights as to the correct understanding of dominion, of rulership. If you have any familiarity with scripture or if you've read it for a time, you'll know that it is of central importance to God. That humans understand the proper definition of authority and the just use of power. Such concepts are central from the first pages of scripture, through every book and story, straight to the cross, and through the culmination of the new heaven and new earth. To be blunt, righteous rule and proper authority are extremely important to God. So if phrases like this spark in our minds and hearts an imagined permission to exploit, commodify, consume, or neglect with divine license— Clearly we've formed our understanding of power and authority from worldly institutions and their standards, not from the word of God. But what does right rule and the proper use of authority look like in God's creation? If you'd like to turn to Psalm 72, Psalm 72 describes the ideal King here. It's imagined in Solomon, but ultimately the Psalm is prophetically looking ahead to Jesus and to the new life that Jesus offers to us. I won't be reading the full psalm, but I will highlight a few excerpts. You can totally pin it to read later. It's a good one. Some of the verses, and I'll start with the the beginning verse. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people, in the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the moon grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound until the moon is no more. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. May it wave on the tops of the mountains. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like grass of the field. And I'll stop the excerpt there. We can see here that the right ruler exercises dominion properly. And the results of their rule are justice for the oppressed, deliverance for the poor and the needy, and righteousness towards all creation. And the result of such a rule is shalom, the peace and flourishing of all creation. Shalom is an ecosystemic reality. And this highlights that our care for one another is not separate from our care for creation and other non human creatures. In fact, contrary to our common tendency to divide caring for neighbor and caring for the planet into separate categories, these are actually far more connected than we would imagine. More on this later. But if we're still wondering what this right kind of rule looks like, God provides us an even clearer picture. And here, if you'd like to turn to Mark 10, if you're still tracking with me, go for it. In Mark 10, just to set the scene, Jesus' disciples find themselves enamored with the worldly vision of power. James and John approach Jesus and ask to sit at his right and left hands when he comes into his glory. And then the other 10 get mad at James and John, presumably for asking outright what they each secretly hoped for. Now, I know you can't imagine desiring a position of influence, respect, comfort, and good reputation. We surely can't relate to these short-sighted disciples at all. Maybe you can't. You're probably more sanctified than me. But in verse 42 of Mark 10, Jesus responds to this striving for power. Verse 42, he says this, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we hear the words master and rule, Jesus tells us the image that should come to mind. The Son of Man washing the feet of fishermen, of peasants, of outcasts, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, caring. Proper rule is service and sacrifice. So if we are serious about obeying God's call to rule and master, then we will live lives of sacrifice and service for that which God loves our tendency to use our unique responsibility as a license to act selfishly and violently towards God's world is truly breathtaking and well documented in any brief history of supposedly Christian attitudes towards creation. Wendell Berry minces no words regarding such an interpretation of Genesis 1 as license to abuse the natural world. He says, such a reading is contradicted by virtually all the rest of the Bible. The ecological teaching of the Bible is inescapable. God made the world because God wanted it made. God thinks the world is good and loves it. It is God's world. God has never relinquished title to it, and God has never revoked the conditions that oblige us to take excellent care of it. If God loves the world, then how might any person of faith be excused for not loving it or justified in destroying it? If our bodies bear the image of God and if we represent God in creation, then our delegated authority to rule and master it must be of a like nature to God's example of ruling. And God's example of ruling looks like executing justice, delivering the vulnerable, protecting the weak, walking in righteousness, and working towards the ecological value of shalom. Or as summed up by Jesus in Mark 10, it is service and sacrifice. In other words, at least as far as God is concerned, to rule is to steward, because that which we rule is not ours. And we rule on behalf of a higher authority who we will answer to. And as a side note, even as we talk about rule and authority, if you refer to Genesis 1, and 28, you will find that God gives humanity authority over sea creatures, birds, and other land animals. So the cattle, the wild animals, the creeping things that creep on the earth. Our authority extends to other non-human animals. It does not extend to plants, to the land itself, to the sea, or to the air. We're never given authority, even delegated authority over all of creation. Just an observation. Even if such a theology of creation strikes us as reasonable or familiar, there can be other things beyond our own selfishness that get in the way of our being good stewards. I'll take a small amount of time here to address just one that comes from a certain reading of scripture. One common cause for confusion among many Christians is the popular belief that God intends to destroy the world with fire and evacuate humanity at the end of time. This is not a sermon on eschatology uh, the end times, but it is important that we address these ideas as they relate to our understanding of God's intentions for creation. A key text commonly cited as supporting the notion that the world will be destroyed is 2 Peter 3.10. So if you'd like to turn there, go for it. Again, that's 2 Peter 3.10. In this passage, the author is exhorting their readers to remain faithful and patient as they wait for Christ's return. And in verse 10, they say, and here I'll read from the ESV. They say, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Other translations like the RSV and the KJV end with the earth and the works done on it will be burned up. Other translations say that creation and all that is done on it will vanish or be laid bare. Most English translations translate this last clause in some kind of creation negating manner. The Greek verb that translators are seeking to translate is hierathesitai. It comes from the Greek verb hierisko, to find. It's the root that we get the English word eureka from. So in case you're interested, the root hierisko is used almost 200 times in the New Testament, and it is almost always translated as found or to find. A couple other less frequent translations include disclose, prove, or recognize. In zero instances of its translation in the NRSV does this word uh, remotely relate to burning, zero. In other words, the text seems to be saying that after a refiner's fire of purification, the new earth will be found, not burned up. It will be discovered, not destroyed. The NRSV translates along this vein and says that the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Similarly, the German Bible says that the earth and the works upon it will find their judgment. But it's perhaps the 1975 Dutch translation that comes closest to the best translation of the Greek in saying, the earth and the works upon it will be found. This might not make sense to us initially, but when we survey the use of fire in Scripture, we find that while at times it does signify a destructive force— at other times, fire is used as a means of purification, a way of burning off what is evil or impure and refining what remains so that it is singular and whole, much like silver or a goldsmith would use fire to burn off impurities to refine a precious metal. There are many examples of this in scripture. I'll just read just a few. In Zechariah thirteen nine, God says, I will put this third into the fire, refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. In Malachi 3.2, it speaks of the messenger of the covenant saying, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And last example from the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 3.13, Paul explains that the day of the Lord will disclose the work of each builder for the gospel because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built is built on the foundation, uh, it survives. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but as only through fire. Readers have understood 2 Peter 3.10 to be about refining fire throughout the centuries, even if this has been a less popular interpretation in some circles in recent decades. John Calvin understood the text to show that the fires of judgment will not destroy creation, but will purify its original and enduring substance. Thomas Finger summarizes by saying, The main emphasis of the text is that everything will be scrutinized or assessed by God, not necessarily destroyed. Susan Schreiner explains that such an interpretation understands God to be faithful to the creation that God loves so much. Just as God has brought the cosmos into being and is closely involved in its every particle from the grasses of the field to the lives of the sparrows to the hairs on our heads, God will remain faithful to creation and renew and transform its substance when the time comes for all things to be made right. So thus, when we carefully study Second Peter through, we find that it actually speaks of a basic continuity rather than discontinuity between this world and the next. And we can therefore trust that creation is not some temporary container or inconsequential stop on our way to something greater beyond. Creation, this one is our proper home. It's important to God. God is not leaving it behind. We've journeyed this morning through many passages in scripture, through lots of Greek words that either really excite you or really don't, through passages and interpretations that may be familiar or completely new or maybe a little bit of both. We've considered what a theology of creation and of God as creator might look like. We've looked at some passages and explored approaches that might yield a more fruitful understanding of who God is and what God is about. So to some, we're in the creator's world. Creation. Creation is responsive. It's wisely ordered. It's founded in peace. It's good. It's home to many good and blessed creatures. In its fullness, it's very good and blessed for rest. All humanity is given a special status in creation, and with this special status comes the unique responsibility of stewarding and serving its ruling in the image of God as modeled by Christ. And humanity is commanded with this responsibility and the expectation that God will return and creation will be found and restored so that God may come and rule in it with all God's people and creatures for all eternity. And this is good news. And this good news should have bearing on our discipleship. Thomas Finger Logics, that since God will transform the earth we now have, the earth must be precious to God, and proper stewardship of non-human nature is a task with eternal consequences. Perhaps this news feels like fresh water to your soul. Perhaps it challenges you, asks you to reconsider or think anew, to metanoia, to repentance. If you've been listening to Ben talk about metanoia these past few weeks. Perhaps it is difficult to receive this news or to try on a different perspective. Perhaps you're energized by our time reading and learning together. Perhaps you're exhausted. I hope that it opens up space for us to imagine and wonder about what it means to live as a creature in fellowship with the world and in worship of our common creator. I hope that it opens up new questions for us. If God's work is about restoring, renewing, redeeming, and making whole, then what sort of work ought we to be about? What does this mean for our treatment of our home? For our stewardship of nature? For our use of precious resources? For our conservation of space? For our love of the ground for which we are named? What does it mean for us to tend and to keep it? as we're commanded. So let our may we let our minds be percolating over the coming days about what values, what ethics, what practices we ought to pursue as people charged by God to care for creation. And next week we will come back together and consider these questions more together. Let us pray. God, thank you for giving us the gift of our beautiful home. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of fellowship with each other. The gift of our senses to take in the wonders of your creation. Thank you for being a God who creates in love. Thank you for loving us into being. We pray that you would continue to transform our minds and our hearts and our beings as we take in your truth, as we open our eyes and awake to the wonder of what you have done. Stir us, change us, wake us up, break our hearts. May we see you and may we see you in every fiber of our world, God. Be about the work of making us the people that you would have for us to be. And thank you for journeying with us. Thank you that this is so. Amen.